Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. I'm your host, Bob. I'm hanging out, talking sports with my older brother, as always, Chris. Chris, what's going on, man? Not much. Home safe from California. Good. There will be no air conditioner blaring in the background this podcast. I do apologize. Yeah. Last week, the audio was a little off, and it was my fault. Uh, so... My fault, guys. Sorry about that, but we're back to normal now, and everything's good. Yeah, certainly. It's it's good that we're back, but, you know, better we had uh, sketchy audio than have no episode at all, so I'm glad we were able to still record an episode, especially right after the Super Bowl. It was a good episode. If you if you were able to stomach the audio, it, it, it was a good episode, so definitely look look back at that, listen to that if you're, if you're interested to hear what we had, had to say about the Super Bowl, but the Super Bowl is a week away, or a week in the past we are done with football for a while we are in full basketball mode main topic of the day is the nba you know when we talked about the nba this season it's been more kind of glossing over the big guns on top talking about some of those guys out west in golden state and san antonio talking about cleveland in the east which looks like the the favorite to win the eastern conference but we haven't really talked about some of those dark horse teams uh it kind of sitting in the four seed, the, th- the three seed, especially in the Eastern Conference, there are some teams out there that uh, are kind of surprisingly, surprisingly really good, Chris. And I think uh, those two big surprises are Boston and Toronto. Uh, which one do you think is, is a legitimate threat to the Cavs out East? Yeah, it's, it's odd. It's an odd dynamic. And before I answer your question, just to add something to this, you know, out West, a lot of people view the Clippers and the Thunder as legitimate title contenders, maybe more so Oklahoma City, and even they're getting a lot of talk. But, you know, only one team can come out of the West, and there's four that people are talking about. So two of them are going to lose in the semifinals. But Cleveland has been kind of anointed the Eastern Conference champion since this season began with very little competition. But they will still have a challenger in that conference final. So when you look at Boston and Toronto... They're the two and the three seeds, which means that one of those two is likely going to get a shot to play for a trip to the NBA Finals. One other team in the East that people will probably look at as the fourth best team of whatever four teams make the semifinals or the conference final round will have a shot to play for a trip to the NBA Finals. And right now, it looks like it's Toronto and Boston. And these two teams, as you mentioned, very much a surprise. I don't think many people had Boston in the playoffs. If they did, maybe as an eight or a seven seed. I don't think very many people had Toronto seated higher than fifth or fourth, especially with the new rule that the division champions aren't guaranteed a top four seed. So to see these two, not only at two and three, but Toronto only three games out of first and not far off of Cleveland's tail, Boston seven and a half games out of first, so a little further out. It is surprising, and if I had to pick one that I'm more sold on, I would have to go with the Raptors. Uh, Right off the bat, they've been to the playoffs the last two years. If you watch the uh, All-Star game, you know, they had the Raptors are led by Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, who, behind the Splash Brothers, are probably the best backcourt in the NBA. I mean, DeRozan's averaging about 23.4 points a game, Kyle Lowry around 21 points, but he also adds... 6.3 assists, 2.2 steals. The two of them did very well in the All-Star game. Lowry especially, I believe he had 10 assists in the All-Star game. So their backcourt is very strong. 
And it seems like this team has just been growing for the last few years when they were able to keep Kyle Kyle Lowry uh, instead of letting him go in free agency. A lot of people thought he might leave for a contender. They kept him. And the last two years, even though they've been knocked out in the first round, they've been developing some consistency. It seems like with some of these other contenders like Miami and Atlanta and to an extent Indiana not stepping up in the way we thought, Toronto is the most experienced of that group. And it looks like they, you know, are, are finally taking another step forward. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I really like this Toronto Raptors roster. I, I kind of like them heading in uh, to this season. I, I wasn't saying that they're uh, going to be number one seed or even the number two seed, but I thought that they had a chance to finish in the top four for sure. And it's mostly because of that dynamic backcourt. Uh, like you said, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry, it's hard to argue against any other backcourt being better than that. But in the Eastern Conference, I think Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan are the best. Uh, They seem to be a package deal. January, they were the Eastern Conference co-players of the month. Uh, Kind of cute thing to see both of them averaging over 20 points. Uh, The reason I like them more than the Raptors and even more than uh, the Atlanta Hawks or the Chicago Bulls is that they have two legitimate playmakers. And that's one more playmaker than either of those teams can say they have in Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan both guys who can create their own shots who can uh you know handle the ball you can give them the ball when when uh you need a point and they can get it for you and they play well off each other and, and they clearly operate well together and then if you just look at the roster all together with the Raptors you know DeMar Demari Carroll is uh a perfect number three or number four player a small forward that can also guard power forwards and shooting guards He's not having. Uh, he hasn't played a whole lot this year, but he's still averaging 11 points. If he can get healthy for the postseason, he's going to be a great asset for them. And then they have a good, good big man down low in Jonas Valachunas, a guy that uh, uh, you know he was one of those Euro big centers that was taken in that uh, 2011 draft uh, that a lot of people just weren't really sold on. But he's slowly growing and is a great center down low. They just have a very well-balanced, complete roster. And I think that's the one knock I have against the Boston Celtics is they have a very unconventional roster. When it comes time for the postseason, you need a dynamic, athletic scorer, a guy that you can rely on. I don't think the Celtics have that. I think the Raptors have two of those guys plus a really good complementing core. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. But I don't want to just gloss over Jonas Valanciunas because a couple of points I want to make. First, Toronto is one of four teams in the East that is holding teams to less than 100 points per game defensively. Cleveland, Atlanta, and Miami being the other three. Expanded to the NBA, they are one of seven with San Antonio, Memphis, and Utah. Those are good teams to be associated with defensively. Unlike other dark horses, three of those seven teams holding teams to under 100 points that I mentioned are also scoring less than 100 points per game. The Raptors are not one of those teams. They're averaging 101.8 points, and they have two guys, as we mentioned, averaging 20 points per game. But may surprise you that Valanciunas actually has a higher player efficiency rating than DeMar DeRozan. He is averaging 12.3 points, 9.4 rebounds, and 1.17 blocks per game. He's only played 35 games because he missed a 17-game stretch in November with an injury. But this guy's a legitimate force. And I would argue that you know they might not have a true star-studded superstar big three. But if you look at the numbers, three guys with a PER of at least 21, that's kind of a big three. I mean, they have two dynamic guard scorers 
a big man who can anchor a defense, your favorite glue guy, uh, Damari Carroll, who you raved about when he was with Atlanta. He's your typical 3 and D guy. He's shooting 37.8% from three, and he can guard a number of different players all along the wing. Bob, this team may start... It may be starting to come together. They're, they're, they're very solid. They have a nice starting cast. The only question is, do they have enough star power? Are these guys, when the playoffs come and rotations shrink and you put the ball in their hands, can they step up on the biggest stage? We, ha- we don't know yet. They haven't had a chance to do it yet. It's one of those chicken and the eggs things. Uh, you know, Is he a superstar before he steps up or after he steps up? you got to give a guy a shot to prove themselves. They haven't had that yet, so I don't know. But if you look at the numbers, you look at their efficiency ratings, they have the makings of a team that could probably challenge Cleveland if they were to meet in the conference finals. Yeah, definitely. I I think uh, this is the year that we're going to find out because they have made the playoffs uh, the past couple of years. This core has been intact. Uh, I think now is the time, if they are going to be a team, that uh, a force to be reckoned with in the next few years, uh, they have to show us something, and I think that means they have to at least uh, win at least two playoff series, get to that Eastern Conference Finals, and and be, assuming that Cleveland's going to be the other team in there, at, at least give them a run for their money. Uh, they can't just lay down and, and let some of these other established teams bully bully them around like like we've seen happen in the past couple of years. So this is definitely the year for it to happen. I think Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan are, in, are so in sync right now that they certainly – have that momentum where uh, one of those guys can step up in the postseason or maybe both of them can. But like you said, we really just have to wait and see till the summertime till when rotations shrink, the pressure's on, every possession counts. Let's see what these guys are made of. But uh, I like what I see right now. And I think there's enough, at least if it's not bona fide star power, it's tier two star power on this team that that can definitely carry them to in a postseason run. So if I were to ask you, Bob, who the highest scoring team in the East is right now, who would you say? Is it, is it Boston? It is Boston. They're averaging about 105 points per game, 105.7 points per game. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I I, I have to think that that I – th- I think Brad Stevens, man, is one of the best coaches in the NBA. And I, I have to give that a, a lot of credit to him because I'm, I just look at this roster and it's a bunch of undersized pos- – players at every position i mean how many point guards do they have how many shooting guards are on this roster evan turner and jared sullinger are getting big minutes and they're guys that are kind of always playing out of position i i have to give credit to brad stevens because that is really impressive only one scorer that's scoring more than 20 points a game that's isaiah thomas who is one of the shortest guys in the league uh the celtics this celtics team is very unconventional it's very impressive that they're uh gunning for that number number two seed, even a number one seed at this point in the East. Uh, it, it's very impressive, yeah. Yeah, their guard play is elite. They have three point guards in Isaiah Thomas, Avery Bradley, Marcus Smart, who on draft day a couple years ago, I couldn't believe didn't get drafted higher. I love Marcus Smart out of Oklahoma State. Evan Turner is at the two, and Jay Crowder at the small forward who can kind of swing around, kind of like Damari Carroll, uh, can, can do a lot of different things. So, they are a very perimeter-oriented team. Um, you, you look at their post, David Lee and Tyler Zeller don't add much, but they're not really starting. It's Kelly Olenek, Jerry Sullinger, and then Amir Johnson, who is 
you know, averaging 6.3 rebounds per game behind Solinger's 8.5 per game. And Solinger was a, a very strong player at Ohio State, helped lead him to a Final Four and Elite Eight. So uh, he, he's been kind of marred by injuries in his career. We'll see if he can stay healthy for the postseason run. But getting back to their scoring, that this, this shocked me when I saw that Boston was leading the conference, the Eastern Conference, in scoring. They're the fourth best in the NBA behind Golden State, Oklahoma City, and Sacramento. They only have four guys averaging 10 points or more per game. And as you mentioned, Isaiah Thomas is averaging 21.5 points along with his 6.6 assists and uh, you know 1.6 steals. I mean, he's doing great. But they have three other guys in Sullinger, Smart, and Turner who are averaging 9.9 points per game. So let's just be realistic. They have about seven guys who are averaging 10 points per game. So they have a very balanced attack, and they can get scoring from a number of different sources, which I think is the sort of unseen part of Boston. They don't have a true number one superstar. I think Isaiah Thomas is a great player, but I think he's better as your number two option than your number one if they could get a superstar, because they have a ton of draft picks over the next few years, as, as I just mentioned, seven guys who are averaging 9.9 points or, or better, they have a lot of assets that they could make a move at this deadline. If they were to get a guy who could add some punch, especially in the front court, and get some more front court scoring and balance out that offense a bit, I think they'd be a true legitimate threat. But as presently constructed, I don't know if that's enough firepower to win in the postseason. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, the roster as it is right now, it, it as good as everything that we've just said about it. You know, they have some great perimeter defenders. They have seven guys that are essentially scoring in double digits. If you include those nine point nine guys, uh, not a single one of those guys though intimidates me. It makes me scared uh, if I'm the opposing team that he can just take over the game and win. Uh, you know, Isaiah Thomas can certainly take over a game and and, and score a lot of points, but I just think he has some deficiencies in other aspects of the game, particularly defensively. Uh, I don't think he's can, can control the game that way. I, this team is just not scary presently constructed, but I definitely agree with you. They should definitely be a buyer right now in the trade deadline. If there is a star available right now, they should go out and get it because this is a great team with a great coach, uh, that just needs needs a one a number one or number two guy, and if they have that, they can be a very scary team. Um, this is Boston that we're talking about, so I think if that star isn't there, they're just going to patiently wait because Boston is one of those premier franchises. They're eventually going to get one of those guys, and they're a good team right now as presently constructed. So they can definitely be patient with it. But if there's somebody available, like some of the big names that we've heard in in the rumor mill for the trade deadline that's approaching. I think they should definitely be a buyer. Oh, certainly they should be a buyer, but it has to be the right guy because, as you said, the cap's about to go up. They'll have cap room to get a superstar, and superstars will want to play for Boston. So they can be patient, but, again, it's one of those things where it's easy to have the ammunition to trade for a superstar. Guys don't put superstars on the block very often. I mean, there, there's talk that Blake Griffin might be on the block. There's talk. I mean, Kevin Love would be perfect for this team. And we'll talk about this on Clee Talk, our bonus podcast this week, uh, more about Kevin Love. If Boston were to pull that off, that would just be a huge coup for them. 
And I think that might make them maybe even the favorites in the East. I might go that far if they were to, to swing that. Um, and, and the other one is, uh, you know, DeMar Cousins over in Sacramento, who maybe, maybe not be on the block. But other than those three guys, I mean, what other superstars are really out there? Like true superstars that would make Boston want to part ways with its assets. Oklahoma City isn't going to trade Kevin Durant. They might lose him in free agency, but they're not going to trade him. They're, they're going to go all in and try to get a championship out of this run. So I, I don't think Boston is going to be able to trade for that high caliber player, even with a godfather-like offer. The one thing they might be able to do is maybe finagle Dwight Howard away from the Rockets. But at this point, is Dwight Howard the guy that you want to go all in for? Uh, I think certainly not. I don't think he ever has been, say, for maybe two years in his career. Uh, Dwight Howard at this point with it, with back injuries, knee injuries, and just overall attitude issues, I don't think he's a star. And I think uh, you have a great coach who has a team full of very coachable players. And I don't know if you want to bring somebody with the kind of mental attitude that Dwight Howard has, that is also lacking the physical, physical assets. I mean, DeMarcus cousins, he's a head case as well, but he's the best center in the NBA. You can live with that. Dwight Howard isn't the best, isn't one of the best big men in the NBA anymore. He's, he's more of a shell of himself. And I don't, I would not, I would stay away from that trade for sure. I also want to point one thing out, and I know you've mentioned Brad Stevens as a great coach the last couple of times. I'm not necessarily saying he's doing a bad job in Boston. I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but he's got to win a little more than one trip and a sweep in the playoffs for me to attach the great label next to him. He's doing a fine job with a lot of guys who are coachable, but when you look at this Boston team, it's a role players team. I am not sold on them finishing in third. I think Atlanta, Indiana, or Miami will bubble up and knock them down to a four, five, or six seed. That's kind of where they are right now. I want to see a couple things out of Brad Stevens before I attach this label to him. One, I want to see him be able to coach a superstar. Because as you mentioned, he's coaching a lot of very coachable guys right now. What happens when Boston makes that move and you have a big ego superstar coming in and a coach who is used to running things his way. And Brad Stevens has not been challenged like that in the NBA yet. He's got to pass that test first. We've seen very, very capable coaches getting eaten alive by superstars. He has not faced that yet. It, Boston is going to make this move eventually, either in free agency or trade, and he's going to have to handle that. And secondly, he's got to go further in the playoffs than a 4-0 sweep as a 7 seed. And I understand, you know, I think great is a word that gets thrown around too loosely. The guy is doing a fine job. He is, he's certainly shown talent, but I'm going to tune it down on him a little bit and wait until Boston accomplishes a little bit more before I slap that label on him. Well, that's, a, that's a fair point. And I, I think it's also kind of unfair to hold that against him when it, you know, it's out of his hands. Uh, I, I think he's a really good coach and I think he, he's shown just, that there are ways to win without having the star and, and they, 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 they've done a really good job with that. And I think you've also, also made a really good point with that. You know, the Celtics haven't steadily commanded this number three seed, nor have they ever really been in that two seed. You know, they've, they've surged up their rankings in the past few weeks. Uh, you know, they were, they were always in the playoff contention, but uh, they, they've put together a really good run. So we are talking about the Celtics uh, at their, the peak optimum, optimum, uh, time in their season right now they have they, this is the best record they've had so far so uh you're right they they do have 
to show some staying power. And, and that also rely a lot of that lands on Brad Stevens as well. And I also, and not to like nitpick everything you say about Brad Stevens, but he's shown that you can get to the playoffs with a good cast, but, but we've kind of already known that a lot of teams have done what Boston's done. I think if, if he were to somehow get to the NBA finals or kind of even the conference finals with this team, it would prove something even in this kind of weaker East, because to get there, he'd still have to get through uh, like a team with a Paul George or a team with Dwayne Wade slash Chris Bosh or a team with quote unquote star power to do it probably in one of those two rounds. So if he were to do that, I'd kind of buy into it a little bit more. But right now, when I look at the Celtics, I see a team that's kind of a first round exit. I don't think that they're going to go beyond the first round as presently constructed. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. Um, but you know, they're in, they're in that three seed, so maybe I think it's possible for them to actually survive a round with, uh, you know, as of right now, you're right. They, they might play the heat or the Pacers or even the bulls. I think it's possible for them sur- to survive that team because, you know, they, they have performed well recently, but yeah, only, only time will tell with them. Um, both of these teams, you know, the Toronto and Boston, they're, they're both still a little bit unproven. Um, so I think we're, I guess we're in agreement that, you know, Toronto Raptors are the number two team to be in the East. Yeah, I think as of right now, Toronto's the number two team. Until I see more out of Miami or Indiana or Atlanta, uh, Toronto right now has proven that they're the number two team. I mean, it's Cleveland and seven other teams right now. And I think if as long as you're not facing Cleveland, you're, you've got a 50-50 shot at advancing home court or not. I don't think any there is another truly great team in the Eastern Conference, Toronto included. Toronto is a very solid team. But I don't think there's another truly great team. I think if Miami could get it together and play up to its potential with all that star power it has, it could be. But for whatever reason, things just aren't translating this year. I don't know what's going on with the Heat. Uh, Indiana has Paul George and a couple other good scorers and some young bigs. But you know, there's got to be some more consistency out of some of these Eastern Conference teams. Uh, I, I think when we get to the playoffs, we might see it a little bit. And, and the other team I'm really disappointed in is Washington. They have just been a total letdown this year. So these team, the teams in the East not named Cleveland are all on the same level in my mind. And I think if they're playing each other in a series, it's going to be very hard to pick because I think it's kind of a coin flip each one of them. No, certainly. I, but I, I will say that the bottom tier, that the battle for that eighth seed is actually – you know, there are some talented teams there. You know, Detroit, I, I think, it is a is a good team. They ha- have star power. You know, Andre Drummond and even uh, Reggie Jackson is a, is a quality point guard. And then, you know, the Wizards sitting at tenth right now. If they can put something together and they enter the playoffs as an eight seed, a seventh seed, that's going to be a very challenging first round for whoever finishes up top in the East. So, you know, for once in the Eastern Conference, it looks like there there may be an actual. Uh, competitive first round for, for those top seeds. And it'll be interesting to see. Oh, I think so too. I think the Eastern conference has gotten a lot deeper. And if you go top to bottom, it's rivaling the West. The West is very top heavy. So you can't really say it's better, but the depth is starting to develop. I mean, you got Milwaukee. A lot of teams thought a lot. We thought Milwaukee would be a lot better. They're third worst in the East right now. Uh, so it is kind of an interesting race. I mean, just imagine that the Washington Wizards get the eighth seed and you got the John Wall, Kyrie Irving battle in the first round. I mean, 
thank you, Cleveland, for winning that one seed. You get the Washington Wizards, a team that they've naturally had a rivalry with and the whole John Wall, Kyrie Irving debate. So that certainly could be some intriguing basketball for anyone who's not in Cleveland and doesn't want anything challenging to happen in the Cavs until the NBA Finals. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it'd be the first time really a, a, five, a plus 500 team in the eighth seed is is – is competitive so it'll it'll it's shaping up to be a more competitive eastern conference playoffs for sure and one more thing i mentioned that the celtics were seven and a half games out of first there are also uh, only four games up on the eighth seed and four and a half games up on the on, on the uh, detroit pistons who are in ninth so it's very tight from that three to nine range of teams and it certainly wouldn't surprise me if boston slid down the standings a little bit and honestly, I mean, I know they're in the three right now, but it wouldn't shock me if they didn't make the playoffs. Certainly wouldn't shock me if they didn't make the playoffs. Yeah, I think I think it's very it's it's a possibility. Uh, like like we just talked about, there are eight quality teams gunning for seven spots. So you know, anything can happen, and the race is very tight. So that that would not surprise me either. That would be pretty embarrassing, but it wouldn't be surprising. There's still still plenty of basketball to play. All right, so you know we're talking about this about halfway, a little over halfway through the NBA season. Uh, the NBA took a break this weekend with the All Star Game, the All Star festivities. Chris, did you have a chance to to watch any of the the All Star festivities, the events before or the All Star Game? This is a rare moment in time. I actually watched all of it. I watched all <laughs> the events on Saturday and the game last night. So. <coughs> Sorry about that. Yes, I did watch all of All-Star Weekend, even the dunk contest, and I was reminded uh, as to why I don't like watching the dunk contest. (laughs) Um, But the All-Star game is fun. Uh, You know, this year it was a ridiculous score. Uh, 163 points was the previous record, and the final was 196 to 172. (laughs) And the funny note is the Toronto scoreboard only goes up to 199 points. So if the West had scored four more points, they wouldn't have been able to keep scoring. It would have broke it. It would have been hilarious. Uh, So that was that was just funny. Look. The NBA All-Star Game is is one of the more fun ones. Yeah, I know there's no defense, but it is so cool to see the best of the best on the same court doing a bunch of trick dunks, trick shots, everything. I think that's what's fun about it. I think there were only like three fouls called in the whole game and like two blocks in the whole game. So there was no defense. But it was it is fun to see the best of the best on the same court and doing some just insane trick shots. Yeah, definitely. I, I think basketball is very much a showman's game and it's fun to watch them show off and you get glimpses of that in real competitive basketball. Uh, but it's also fun to just see them fool around and, and just do insane things and remind you that these guys are crazy athletic and, and everything that they do. When you transfer that over to you know the NFL Pro Bowl, it just doesn't work because it's such a violent game. You need that tension to to realize how good a, of of an athlete those those NFL players are. And baseball, I don't know how you play a game without really trying. So you know NBA, it's great. It, it's an exhibition. It, it reminds you of kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters coming together, but it's all NBA stars. It's fun to watch. So I I, I like the NBA All Star Game. 
the scoring was insane i cannot even get to 173 points when i'm playing a video game and i set it to 12 minutes a a, a quarter uh, i don't know how they're able to do that but i mean these guys are great and and there were some pretty pretty amazing shocking moments during that game it was fun to watch didn't it remind you of the days we used to play ken griffey jr winning run we had that team that went like 162 and 0, scored like 10,000 runs. We had like a bunch of games that were like 110 to nothing. We had a bunch of innings that were like 24 to nothing. I mean, didn't it kind of just remind you of that? I mean, 196 to 172. I mean, it's just it's just insane to see the uh, the the scoring on some of these All Star games. I mean, those are the two highest point totals in history. The the record was 163. So. Uh, both teams broke the record, unfortunately. Uh, for the East, uh, they went up against the new record holder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point the point total was crazy. Again, I just don't I don't know how they were able to score to manage that many buckets in, in a regular regularly timed four quarter match. But uh, that's why they're the best. Um, you know, Paul George's night was pretty impressive. It would have been more impressive it was if it was on the. Uh, winning side of the ball, uh, uh, you know, 41 points, one point shy of Wilt Chamberlain. What were your thoughts of when they started to double team him at the end? Well, first off, I laughed when uh, uh, Russell Westbrook said when he accepted the MVP trophy that, no, no, we had no idea he was going for the record. Garbage. They sent Draymond Green and Kevin Durant. Pop called a timeout to sub in Anthony Davis for a rim protector. So they had their rim protector on the court, and they doubled him with Green and Durant. Yeah, you didn't realize he was going for the record? They doubled him with two of the best players on the team for the last uh, like minute and ten seconds. So they certainly knew that he was going for that record, and they were doing everything they can to stop him. And rightfully so. I wanted him to earn it a little bit. And he had two shots at the end from three to try to break it, and he, you know, didn't make them. But hey, let's not nitpick. He was 16 of 26 from the floor. He made nine three-point shots on 19 attempts. So uh, you can <laughs> see what his method of operation was uh, to get to 41. Uh, but he tied Westbrook, who did it last year, and Westbrook obviously winning back-to-back MVPs. Um, he tied Westbrook for the second-highest scoring night, but was one point shy of Wilk Chamberlain's uh, 42. Yeah, and so do you think? Westbrook was a deserving MVP, or would you have given it to someone else? Absolutely. I mean, he scored 31 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, and 5 steals, 22 minutes. I'm kind of glad Kobe Bryant didn't win it, because Kobe, I don't think he played well enough to win it. It would have been the epitome of a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, I'm glad they gave it to the guy who led the team in scoring and and actually filled the stat sheet, and that was uh, Russell Westbrook. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was nice having Kobe out there on the floor for an All-Star game. You know, he... Uh, still led the or came close to leading the league in votes the past couple years when he was out for injuries it was nice to see him in his final year out there playing you know they were chanting his name at the start Uh, but yeah you know 10 points uh, 364 field goal percentage in the all-star game when everyone else that he started with is above 500 you know definitely not deserving of the MVP of the all-star game even though it's pretty silly award just to begin with but it was nice to see him out there play some uh you know 25 minutes during the game uh you know defend some of those guys on the east that he's played against for a really long time so it, it was a nice final all-star game for kobe it's another breath of reality with kobe bryant that you know he started and ended his career with the lakers there aren't many athletes who do that throughout all sports he is the mo- he is the Derek jeter of basketball you know Derek jeter retired wasn't I'm not a Yankees fan by any stretch, but 
Derek Jeter, man. I mean, an all-time great, same team, won a ton of titles. You got to tip your cap to him. And Kobe Bryant's the same way. You know, I don't like the Lakers. I'm not a Lakers fan. But I have respect for the Stars who stay with one team their entire career. He won a ton of titles. I think he's an 18-time All-Star, which is insane. Only one MVP, kind of surprising. You would think he'd have maybe two. And, you know, it's a surreal moment. I mean, you you look at the last, like, year or so, we lost Derek Jeter to retirement. I mean, Peyton Manning's probably going to retire. And now Kobe Bryant. I mean, you're seeing throughout all sports just this kind of generational change and the torch is being passed on a number of different levels. Yeah, it is a very interesting time, a transitional time in sports. Uh, you know, those big figures on in each sport leaving. Um, there's there's only going to be one Kobe ever, and I'm going to miss uh, some of the things he says, the way he holds himself. Uh, it's kind of a self-indulgent idea of who Kobe is that Kobe portrays, uh, this very hardworking, I will outwork you no matter what, even though he's very very much so but blessed with an incredible basketball talent and has been blessed with some very talented uh teammates including Shaquille O'Neal to, to name just one of them but uh he, he's a one of a kind and I think uh it's been really cool seeing him in these past couple of years as this old man Kobe incredibly even more grumpier and hard to work with and hard to deal with just kind of you know embodying a different kind of NBA player that we aren't really going to see really ever again with the, with the new generation of NBA players that we have right now. No, nope, there's only one Kobe and a five-time champion, seven-time finalist, two-time finals MVP, NBA MVP, 18-time All-Star, uh, scored a ton of points. I forget where he ranks exactly on the all-time scorers list right now because he's kind of been passing some people. So one of the best of all time certainly one of the best guards to ever play the game probably top five guard I don't know I don't know if he'd be a top five NBA player but I certainly think he's probably top 10 of all time uh, there are a lot of great NBA players out there though a lot of guys have racked up the titles I mean you gotta go Magic, Bird, Jordan uh, and I'm just rattling guys off the top of my head I don't have a list like I do in football for quarterbacks but um, certainly one of the best ever yeah absolutely all right, so uh, let's go back a day. NBA uh, festivities, three-point shootout, dunk contest. Chris, uh, did, you said you watched everything, so what were your thoughts on those? Well, I thought it was crazy that Carl uh, Anthony Towns beat Isaiah Thomas in the skills contest. That was a fun competition to watch. Those two went neck and neck. It came down to just who could hit the three first because they both flew through the obstacle course. They both hit the pass. They obviously both hit the layup. And then, you know, Towns just hit it before Thomas could. And it was sweet. I I thought that was really fun to see a big guy beat the short little guard and win the skills contest. I thought that was probably the coolest one of the night uh, because I liked the way they did. They had the big guy half and the little guy half. And then the two met in the finals. And I thought that that was kind of cool to see which one is really better. So props to the NBA for changing the format just a little bit. Or maybe maybe it wasn't a change. I haven't watched the skills contest in a while. That was a new thing. Yeah, like I said, I don't normally watch uh, many of these events. The one I always do try to watch is the three-point shootout because that one's simple. There's a scoring system. It's who can hit more. There's a little more strategy now that you have a rack of money balls and you can put that anywhere. Um, I was disappointed to see the Splash Bros doing it because I'm not the biggest Warriors fan in the world being a Cavs fan. But 
you know, man, they have both those guys on their team. They were killing it from three-point land. You can see why they were the best team in the NBA, uh, Steph Curry being edged out by Klay Thompson. Uh, so that that was fun. It was a fun, you know, three-point shootout. And then I did see Kevin Hart challenge uh, Draymond Green to the three-point shootout and, uh, you know, tie him 12-12 to and then get robbed on the trophy <laughs> ceremony. He should have gotten that trophy, not Draymond Green. Come on. Yeah. The, the, the guy not in the NBA should have the tiebreaker there. If you can't beat a non-NBA player, you don't deserve the trophy. But I think it was all just – I know it was all just a big joke. I understand that. But still, Kevin Hart, you got robbed. <laughs> and then the guy who really, really got robbed would be Mr. Aaron Gordon of Orlando. I understand. I know Zach – look, I'm not trying to hate on Zach Levine here. Zach Levine had a fine night, good dunks. Strong second place performance, but how do you not give the Aaron Gordon the title? He had two dunks that were out of this world insane. The two he went over the mascot for, especially the one in the final where he like jumps. I mean, I can't even describe it. I, I, it was amazing. Yeah. And to give Zach Levine the same score for doing, he he dunked from the free throw line like five times. Okay, not five times, like three out of five times. Yeah. And I mean, it, it wasn't anything new. I mean, when when Gordon, because Gordon went first in the final, when he did his second dunk, and the judges gave him another perfect 10, or 50, I'm like, that's it. Zach Levine should get a 9. One of them needs to give Zach Levine a 9 and give this man the title. They didn't. They didn't have the guts to do it. And that's what irked me, is that the first three rounds of the finals, it's only two rounds and the first dunk off, there was nothing but 10s. The judges did not give a single non-10 score. They can't all be 10s. What are they doing? And then finally, you know, when Gordon runs out of ideas, he's the one who gets docked for it on the fourth go-around, which is ridiculous. He should have won on that exceptionally unique dunk, but it just reinforces my idea that the NBA dunk contest is rigged and they just want to crown a guy a winner. I am convinced that the champion is predetermined. It's all about your name. Zach Levine won it last year. They wanted to give it to him again. It is a rigged competition and I'm done with it forever. Uh, well, okay. Uh, I didn't know you were going to pronounce it dead at the end there. Um I had some thoughts on the dunk contest, uh, you know, three point shootout and the skills competition. I think you touched on those nicely. I don't have much to add. My first thought, who is Will Barton? <laughs> this guy, I mean, yeah, I agree. This dude, like I know the NBA dunk contest has been, it's kind of a joke, like who, the guys that they bring out uh, to compete in it. But man, I, I was like, they, they were showing this highlight reel of Will Barton. I'm just like, who is this guy? The the Nuggets are bad, but I thought that I knew much. I thought I knew most of the players in, in the NBA, especially guys that had good dunking abilities. I thought I would see a highlight, and then I looked him up. He's averaging like fifteen point five points a game, again on a really bad Denver Nuggets team. But still, I was just like, man, this is <laughs> this is gonna be a rough night if Will Barton is one of our best dunkers. Um, but it's hey, surprising. I- I said the same thing last year. I said, who's Zach Levine? <laughs> I mean, last no, year yeah, yeah, it was very, like no one. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's very true. Um, my second thought is I, I agree with you. I don't, I'm not sure if, if, if I would go so far as to say it's rigged, that it's predetermined. Um, like everyone got in a room and said, okay, Zach Levine is going to win. But I think there's usually one guy in the, in the dunk contest that has already been anointed the fact, given the benefit of the doubt. And this year is Zach Levine. We've seen it with D- Dwight Howard when he had his dunks. Uh, Blake Griffin had it. Um, Nate Robinson had it because he was a little guy. Uh, you know, 
he was going to win it and the hype was around him. And usually what happens was the other three guys competing against him or whoever, uh, however many were so bad that nobody really argued against it. And, and it just kind of, of course they're, they're the dunk champion. But this year, after all the years of the, of people saying that the NBA dunk contest is boring, it's not exciting. They finally got what they wanted with two very good dunkers going head to head. And they had some fantastic dunks. Levine, had really good dunks. Aaron Gordon, the things he did uh, in combination with the mascot on the hoverboard were so impressive. I mean, the one-handed pose that he did and the the round-the-world dunk, that was amazing. And then for him to do what was a gymnast move, you know, you see gymnasts do that on the the handlebars, uh, whatever that thing is, to do that on a mascot's head on a hoverboard, wrap his legs around, and then do a reverse dunk. That blew my mind, and they should have just given him the trophy there. But you heard all night them saying that Zach Levine was going to put on a show. You heard all those commentators, which was another problem. You had seven commentators on a table talking over each other, (laughs) saying just stupid things all night. But all of them were in agreement that Zach Levine was going to win this dunk contest before he even dunked the ball. And that was the problem was that they already had this predetermined winner, and they weren't willing to deviate from the path when Aaron Gordon – put on a much better show than Zach Levine dunking from the free throw line at this point does not impress me at all. I see it done live all the time. Guys taking off from that free throw line and laying down vicious dunks live. It doesn't impress me. Okay. You did a little twirl when you did it. Michael Jordan did that almost 30 years ago. Now it's time to, to differentiate it and get something new. That didn't, wasn't too impressive. It, it, I just, I, I was not, it, it just was not, they could have made it a lot better. You know, they ha- they finally had an exciting night, and everyone said that this was one of the best dunk contests they've seen in a while. I was just disappointed with the results. The fact that every time they 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 laid down a dunk, it was a perfect ten or a fifty. Everyone got tens. Um, you know, my, my fiance is a teacher, and she was watching it with me, and she said they need a grading rubric, and I, I agree with them. They need a rubric uh, just to to in case they actually have a situation like this in the future where they can actually do some judging and do some, some some objective judging and actually have categories to score it with. You know, you get docked if you miss it on your first attempt. You you, know, you get style points. You get power points. Uh, maybe it's adjusted for height. Uh, they, they do need a rubric just because it, it was a disappointing result at the end. And first off, I agree with everything you said. I used the wrong word in rigged. I think benefit of the doubt is a much better word. There is clearly a perception of who should win the dunk contest. And more often than not, you can pick out who the commentators are angling for after that first round and just say, okay, he's definitely going to win. I agree with you. They need to get some better judging in there because nobody got below a six, which means it's really a score out of five. I mean, just stop calling it a 10. If you don't have the guts to give a guy a 4 or 3 or 2 or a 1, then just make it a 1 to 5 scale because that's what it is. It's an inflated 1 to 5 scale. Secondly, props to Shaq, who in the second round when these guys went at it, Levine and Gordon each missed their first dunk, and then they delivered fantastic dunks. I think Levine's dunk was his second dunk, and Gordon's first mascot dunk was his second dunk, but they both missed their first try. Every other judge gave him a 10. Shaq got booed for giving him a 9. And you could see him lipping, you got to get it on the first try. I give him props 
for holding them accountable by missing the first dunk. I think that a 10 should be a first dunk. So I agree. I think there needs to be some sort of standard to grade this thing on because too often, I mean, from the second round on, everyone was getting a 10 until that fourth, you know, the the, the second dunk off, the, the second overtime that they had to anoint someone a winner. And it was Gordon who got screwed. And Gordon should have won on that second dunk of the final. When I, that dunk went down, I was watching it with our dad, and I said, Dad, that's the best dunk of the night, and that's one of the best dunks I've ever seen. Zach Levine has to do something insane. And all he did was dunk from the free throw line again. I'm like, that shouldn't get perfect 10, and the judges gave him a perfect 10. It's like, come on, man. So that, that, that was not a better dunk than Gordon's insane what should have been a walk-off dunk. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like I said... I- Dunks from the free throw line, you know, watching Michael Jordan do it in slow motion is awesome. Watching anyone else do it, it just doesn't impress me. Uh, do it, do it from farther out if you're if you're gonna dunk. And I don't know if it's possible to do that, but uh, to say a dunk from the free throw line seems like you automatically get these throwback points for some for some odd reason. I I don't quite understand it. One guy tried the dunk from like the circle, like not the free throw line, but like the the top of the key. Like, 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 not the top of the key, but like midway between it. It wasn't at yeah. the three-point line. If someone could dunk from the three-point line, I'll give you a perfect 20. <laughs> I think that it'd would be over. <laughs> that would just be insane. I mean, you could do it in the first round and be like, okay, dunk contest is over. I am grading everyone a one because yeah. this dunk is winning. There is just that you win. Done. And, yeah. So if someone can dunk from the three-point line and I somehow get to judge it, you're going to win. I will make sure that you win. It doesn't matter what ever anything else happens because that would just be insane. No, yeah, it would be insane. I think that would be like an unbeatable move in live basketball as well. You could, if you could dunk from the three point line. Um, well, couldn't be, that be a charge though? If you run into a guy, if he stands in front, if you knock yeah. over some seven footer, wouldn't that be a charge? I guess so. Yeah, it could be. I'm um, speaking of big man. Andre Drummond was very disappointing. I thought I would see some at least some power from him. And I think he gave some of the weakest dunks of the night. Yeah. His problem was Steve Nash took like 10 times to get that kick pass to him. And if you had to do a dunk more than two or three times, you're probably not going to score very high. Yeah. Even, even the other ones weren't really all that impressive. Well, it's tough. Dwight Howard said it best. It's tough for a big guy to win the dunk contest. So Dwight Howard was brilliant when he brought out that bigger hoop and raised it a few feet and then dunked on that. I thought that was one of the best strategies because he's seven foot. And it's true. The big guys don't get the benefit of the doubt. If you want to win a dunk contest, if you're under 5'10 and can dunk, enter a dunk contest because you will win it every time. Everyone likes to see the undersized guys dunk. But nobody wants to see the big guy dunk because everyone thinks it's easy for them. So Dwight was brilliant when he raised that hoop a few feet and still dunked on that. I thought that was one of the better um, tactics used. No, that that was an impressive dunk. Um, and I, I guess I, I, you know, Dwight Howard won it twice. I think his second uh, appearance in the dunk contest, he it was preordained that he was going to win again. It wasn't as impressive, but that first that first time when he donned the Superman cape was pretty impressive, and we did those things. Um, yeah. All right, man. Any other thoughts on the All Star Weekend festivities? No, it was fun, and now it's time for your actual serious basketball to start. Uh, you know, playoff races, trade deadlines. You got buyers and sellers. We're going to talk a lot about that next couple of weeks. But 
uh, it's time for basketball to get to kick it up a notch and i'm excited for that by the way i like that they give them these three extra days between now and the trade deadline so that way if the player gets traded he doesn't have to travel too much they don't start playing again until the trade deadline's up that's nice that's cool i like that so i think they started that last year or two years ago which it's pretty cool because it's like hey you know we got an all-star break trade deadline's right around the corner why make them fly back home if they're just gonna fly somewhere else so yeah pretty good um but anyway the ladies of the u.s women's national team are back on the pitch and they are well they destroyed costa rica five nothing Beat Mexico in a very tight match. I believe it was they didn't score until the 80th minute. It was one nothing, but the two wins clinched them a spot in the semifinals. And the uh, two finalists from the uh, Olympic qualifying region get to go to the Olympics. The, tonight's game match against Puerto Rico doesn't matter. Uh, Mexico versus Costa Rica. They're fighting for a spot in the semis. But Bob, is there any chance that the U.S. women fail to qualify? No, I I don't think so. Uh... They just have to win the semifinal match. You know, both finalists qualify for it. So I, I, I can't really imagine a scenario where they're not going to to uh, to beat Guyana in the semifinals. So uh, I I think it's it, it's almost a done deal that they're going to be in the Olympics. And it'd be a, a travesty, a, a incredible disappointment if they're not. If they lose to Guyana or Trinidad and Tobago, because I believe Trinidad and Tobago is still alive too, that would just be insane. That would be one of the biggest upsets in sports. Right there. The other semifinal is probably going to be Mexico versus Canada, I would think. I think Mexico, maybe Costa Rica, but based on the, the way they played against the U.S., I think Mexico is probably better. So it's probably, either, it's probably going to be the U.S. and then either Mexico and Canada. So pretty much two of the three teams everyone thought would make the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's to be expected. I, I think... Uh, you know, in in the women's side of soccer, if the Americans aren't in the Olympics, it there's going to be a huge gap in, in the competition in the Olympics, and I think uh, everyone would it would be good for the entire sport if that American squad is in. I think if the American squad lost somehow, the Olympic Committee would find a way yeah. to place them in the tournament. They'd say, "Okay, we are adding a thirteenth team because this would be a ratings disaster." <laughs> This team's not in the tournament, and I know that's not going to happen. But it wouldn't shock me if soccer some like thought that idea more than one time. If somehow the U.S. women lost in the semifinals, yeah, that'd be a it'd be a doomsday scenario. One that I don't think is going to happen. But you know, it would be kind of tempting to see what exactly would happen if if they did lose. But it's not going to happen. All right, we got one more quick one here. Uh, the Super Bowl is over, football is over, but we have kind of a football story brewing here. Peyton Manning's off-the-field life has not been particularly great as of late, the whole HGH allegations. And now this story from 1996, from back when he was with the University of Tennessee, um, allegations of a you know sort of sexual misconduct against a female trainer while he was playing, oh, excuse me, it says sexual assault, allegations against him from the University of Tennessee. Just to clarify, though, to make this abundantly clear, this is a very old story. I mean, these two have settled. Uh, there have been lawsuits, you know, from 96 to 2005. This is an old story. This is a part of a, he's been mentioned in this uh, Title IX lawsuit that, you know, is going against the University of Tennessee's football culture, if I'm understanding this correct. 
Bob, what do you think of this? This is just kind of a weird story. My thoughts are kind of, I don't think that people realized this had happened in 96. I think most people didn't realize this happened to Peyton Manning. And for the, a lot of people are realizing that this, this was an incident for the first time, which is why it's kind of becoming a huge story. I'm not trying to make light of it or anything, but this is a really old story. I mean, we're going on 20 years here. What do you, what are your thoughts on this? I think I think it's um, it's very disappointing and it's kind of infuriating that it's coming to light in such a way when Peyton Manning is probably going to ride off into the sunset and really can just hide from the public now and not really address address this in in a, in a proper way uh, that if he were still in the NFL cycle gearing up for another season you know he would actually have to face some hard questions in in a much more public way. Uh, I think that's a big disappointment. I think it's a shame that, you know, all the hate that was directed towards Cam Newton just a week ago. And now we have another story of not him being bad, but you know, a a very serious allegation against Peyton Manning to go on top of with this HGH story. I think that's another big part of it. I think um, one of the, there are a couple of articles that, that detail what was all laid out in the, in the court documents and the settlement suit and all that. And one of them mentioned that, you know, USA Today published a story detailing uh, everything that happened in the early 2000s. And that was just a couple of years before Facebook and Twitter really took off. And I think uh, if if only those things broke a few years later, there would be much more uh, details and, and, and public outcry about what happened in the moment a, a long time ago. But um, for it to ha- come out so late, so late in his career, I think it's, it's, it's very disappointing and it feels, I, I'm sure as we find out more, as this title nine case goes forward, as more articles come out about revealing what happened way back in the late nineties, it's going to be very disheartening and disappointing for a lot of people who believe that Peyton Manning was one of the most clean cut moral guys out there. And, and you know, his entire career of, of endorsements and being a wholesome guy, looks like it it probably was built on a fabrication. And I think that's going to be very disappointing for a lot of people, myself included. Certainly. I think that's the, that's the immediate impact of this story right now is that a lot of people are realizing for the first time that, Hey, maybe Peyton Manning, isn't this, you know, whole home, nice guy that they see in the commercials, which I caution everyone all the time. Look, you watch commercials, you cheer for your guys on the field you don't know these guys. You don't shake hands with them. You don't see them in their daily lives. Guys you may think aren't that good could be great. And guys you think may be great might not be. And so you really don't know these stars as well as we like to think we do. Um, I I don't want to speak to this too much. And it's not that I'm trying to bury it. It's just because... To tell you the truth, it, it is a bit of a convoluted story in the sense that with the lawsuit and this this twenty years gap, and how they settled, bef- you know, back in like two thousand five and, and, and other lawsuits. So a lot there are a lot of moving parts with this story. So I, I just don't want, in all fairness, to get anything wrong with this. But I, I come back to this point that this is a very old story. It was a story at the time. It wasn't highly publicized, as you said. It was in a different era. If this was 2006 and not 1996 he would have faced a lot more scrutiny than he did 
and he would have been in the NFL. Or no, excuse me. Even if he was still in college, he would have faced more scrutiny with the social media and everything. And so I think that I think this is the first time a lot of people are realizing that this even happened to Peyton Manning. That this that Peyton Manning was involved with this um, back in 1996. And I think that's kind of the shock value for a lot of the fans out there that people think that this is newer than it is. This is an old story. The, what Peyton Manning did. Uh, the new development is the Title IX lawsuit, and as you said, there's still moving parts. There are still things that need to be fleshed out and revealed, and as those come to light, we'll, we'll have more to talk about. But again, I mean, it's just the word of caution. I mean, no matter who you cheer for, no matter what team it is, no matter what he looks like on television or on the field, you really don't know a guy until you shake hands with him and see how he is in his daily life. We, we, I have no idea. It's not just Peyton Manning. It's anyone to cheer for. You know, you can do it for Tom Brady, Drew Brees, LeBron James. Anyone you cheer for, you just don't know who they really are off the court or the field. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I thought that if there was something bad in uh, any of the players' personal lives currently, uh, there are too many news outlets and ways of transmitting that news that for us to not find out about it. So I think, you know, Peyton Manning, whose career spans three decades now, uh, he's one of the last of the few who actually might have some secrets to hide. And that, you know, I, I still will be cautious with all the players that I cheer for and who I think are good people, but I think as we continue to progress into an age of everybody knowing everything about everybody, uh, it's going to be harder and harder for people to keep things secret. So I think that's why this is additionally shocking that, you know, for almost for over 20 years now or for 20 years, exactly. Uh, this has been pretty hidden pretty well, considering, uh, the seriousness of the allegations and the, the career that Peyton Manning has built. They, they they brushed it under the table very, very cleanly. And I think that's also just a, a big shock to people that someone can, can keep something, someone so public can keep something so private for so long. Certainly. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a story that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, it seems like the second he retires, all the skeletons start jumping out of the closet you got the hgh you got the uh now this uh, sexual assault allegations and it, it's been it's been you know he won the super bowl it's hard to say a guy who just won the super bowl has had a rough week but i think peyton manning's had a pretty rough week yeah i mean he's had a rough couple months really i mean yeah the super bowl bookending what are two pretty serious allegations uh for the two pillars of his of his life one professionally in hgh and the other publicly with his image and, and the sexual assault so um it's not going away but i i like i said earlier i think it's a little unfair for all of us that it's going to that he's getting to retire without really facing these allegations that uh he committed these things during his professional career Hey, be careful. He hasn't announced his retirement yet. <laughs> All right. Well, it would be the most foolish decision. That, that's not a bet. I'm not betting against it. I think he's going to retire. But anyway, we have crammed a ton into this podcast. We have, uh, you know, 
switch gears to the NBA. Still managed to get a little football in there, though, but we promise with the Super Bowl in our rearview mirrors, there won't be as much football talk, at least until the NFL draft. But once again, thank you for listening. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we will have our bonus episode of Clee Talk coming out this week, so be sure to check that podcast out, too. It's our Cleveland-focused podcast. We'll be talking a little bit about the Cleveland Cavaliers and all the kind of crazy month that they've had. But, uh, yeah, be sure to go over to Clee Talk, and, of course, come back to FenleyRoadSports.com. Check out the new content we'll have on the site. We'll have some blogs for you. Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Just search Fenley Road Sports and come back to the website for more. And come back next week for another episode. But until then, we will talk to you next time. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take care, Bob.